Welcome to Phil and Ted's Sexy Boomer Show with your hosts, Phil Proctor and Ted Bonnet. Phil and Ted's guest today is animation film producer and prolific author, Stephen Leva. And now, your Sexy Boomer hosts, Phil Proctor and Ted Bonnet. Welcome to Phil and Ted's Sexy Boomer Show. I'm Ted Bonnet. And that means I must be Phil Proctor. And we have a very special guest today, a Renaissance man. He's a honored and prolific writer. And so we're going to have a lot to talk about. We have a mutual friend in Ray Bradbury that we'll get to talk about, too. And I wish you could see all of the hats that he brought. He's got all these hats because he, he does so many different things. He's going to put on a different hat uh, when we talk about certain areas of his life. Stephen Paul Leva. Thank you. I, was, I thought it was time to mention who he was. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you, and it's, it's good to be in your uh, pleasant company. It's nice to have you. You've worked with so many interesting people. Uh, you worked as a producer. Yes, I worked as a producer um, starting out in animation, uh-huh. um, because that, that's how I got into the business. Which I, I started out just wanting to write. Mm-hmm. That's, that's my passion, and I wanted to be a novelist. And a friend of mine asked me to help him edit a film newspaper, which he called The Cinemaphile. And uh, we, we got accredited, even though we were under their print run, because they liked it so much from the Motion Picture Producers Association. But I had met a man, Phil Chamberlain, who worked at the Motion Picture Academy uh-huh. and was also involved with the animators organization called ASIFA. And uh, there was a job to be an executive secretary and to work for June Foray, who oh, was the president. Bless. And you know, you knew June. She was Rocky. The squirrel. Blind squirrel, Natasha. Of Bowinkle fame. And yes. I, I did a lot of animation stuff with her over yeah. the years. Then later got hired by Filmex, LA uh, International Film Exposition, to be the, an animation programmer. Because suddenly now mm. I'm an expert on animation. <laughs> right. I worked there for a year. Then I decided I, I really want to produce because I had fallen in love with animation. It's a performance art. It's not an illustrative art. It's not a graphic art. You use illustration, you use graphic, but it's acting. And I fell passionately in love with that. So I, then I decided I wanted to produce. But I, I needed an entryway, and that was to uh, start doing publicity for studios. It was a one-man little publicist shop. So I had Bill Melendez. I had Chuck Jones. The great Chuck Jones yes. of Looney Tunes fame. Yeah. Chuck Jones is a legend. He was a legend in his own mind. As well. <laughs> I'm sure. <laughs> but um, so I started doing that, which led me towards meeting a lot of people. But I kept pleading for animation has to get out of the kiddie market. Yeah, that's right. Because we were at a point where Disney was dying. Everybody predicted Disney animation is dead. What years? The late 70s. Mm-hmm. And, of course, soon Katzenberg and Eisner came in, and they, they wanted to dump the animation department. And they were, Roy Disney wouldn't let them, Roy Disney Jr. Uh, I thought animation should, should grow up. Yep, good for you. Yeah. And, and so I kept pleading and talking to people. And then a friend of mine who had an animation camera service said, you've got to see this thing I shot for these guys that some were at Disney. They all came out of CalArts. And it's like, a, it's like a trailer for a movie they want to make. It's all in pencil test. And I love pencil test because that's when you see the real animation yeah, before yeah. they color it. So I go over and I didn't expect much. Okay? But it was based on an old comic book by Will Eisner called The Spirit. He, he created Sheena of the Jungle, and it was one of the most beautifully drawn comics of the 40s, so, and perfectly animatable. And so he shows this trailer to me, and it's brilliant, and it's the best uh, character animation of adults I'd ever seen in my life. And I said, whoever these guys are, I want to meet them. I want to help them. 
get this movie made? Well, it turned out to be Brad Bird oh, who made it. Iron Giant. The Iron Giant and The Incredibles and Family Dog. Wonderful. So I met with him and then a partner of his at the time, and uh, I, I said, I want to help you. And he said, and this is so Brad, he said, I will only work with George Lucas, Francis Ford Coppola, Steven Spielberg, or Gary Kurtz. Oh my God. Uh, Gary Kurtz was Lucas's producer on Star Wars and American Graffiti, uh-huh. and Empire hadn't was in the process at the time, or, or had just been finished. Wow! And luckily, I had met Gary Kurtz, and uh, I got to know his assistant Bunny. So I called up Bunny and I pitched the idea, and she later told me said if anybody else had called, we would have rejected it. But one, I like you, and Gary loves the spirit. Gary wants to meet. We met with him, and we made a deal. Gary tasked me to negotiate with Will Eisner for the rights. Eventually, he hired me to be director of animation development and an associate producer on another project, which was going to be an animated feature based on the old Winsor McKay uh, early 20th century comic strip, Little Nemo and Slumberland. Oh, yes. And it was a co-production with the Japanese. And when he brought it up to me, I said, well, I already know about that. Because two years before, the Japanese had approached Chuck Jones when I was doing publicity for Chuck Jones. Uh-huh. The Japanese wanted it to be an American co-production. The Japanese wanted to use American animation technique, which is to animate to the voice track. That's right. Mm-hmm. As opposed to the typical Japanese way, which is to do the voice track after they animate. Yeah, you would think that if you're, you're, you're doing the process of animating to a voice track, it would allow for more personality and expression. Well, that's exactly the point. That's right. That's the way the Americans do it. The Japanese, they're stylistic. See, American art, as I was told, is all about the form. Yeah. So you're drawing the form, the, the three-dimensional form when you, when you draw, it's ever since the Renaissance. Japanese art is all about the line. That's right. Mm-hmm. You know, Fujioka-san, who was the head of uh, TMS, Tokyo Movie Sincha, who, who started all this, very much wanted, because it was an American comic strip, he really wanted it to look American. So that was the brief. Uh-huh. Um, and they came to Chuck Jones. Uh, Chuck Jones suggested as a screenwriter Ray Bradbury. Oh, my. Wow. So he had me take Fujioka-san to meet Ray when he, Ray had his office in Beverly Hills. And that's the last I heard of it until Gary mentioned it. And what had happened subsequently is Chuck turned it down. Chuck suggested they go to George Lucas. George Lucas turned it down. George suggested they go to Gary, and Gary picked it up. So I was on that project for two years, a year of development here. And I hired all the American staff, including a young man, uh, American who was working up in Canada named Roger Allers. Now, if you know the name Roger Allers, it's because he co-directed and co-wrote The Lion King and, of course, co-wrote the Broadway musical The Lion King. Which is the greatest grossing musical in the history of Broadway. And it's still running. Still running. You know, because lions don't give up. A lot of pride. A lot of pride there. Now, you were working with Chuck Jones Mm -hmm. after his Looney Tune. Oh, yeah. Yeah, after Looney Tunes and after MGM. Yeah. And I, I met him through Asifa, and then he was one of the first people I went to to be a client. Now, I was a cheap publicist, I think $100 a month for Whoa. each client, because all, I just wanted an in. Right. And in 1990, we formed a company, Chuck Jones Productions, mm-hmm. because he had been approached by Leslie Brickus to do an animated film. Now, uh, what, Little Mermaid came out in 88, 89, so suddenly, boom, 
the explosion, yeah. which I predicted, by the way, in Variety in the late 70s. That animation would have a comeback. I said that there's young animators people don't know about, and mm -hmm. eventually they're going to make animated features that will gross over $100 million. And everybody thought I was an idiot. And my girlfriend at the time uh, was mad at me once, and she said, you, you and this animation, animation stuff, they just think you're a pompous-ass son of a bitch. <laughs> And later, my later girlfriend, who's now my wife, Amanda, said, uh, "P.A.S.O.B. You ought to you ought to use that for a vanity license." <laughs> so, and if you'll notice, that's my email address. Oh, yeah. I thought if I'm going to be a pompous ass son of a bitch because I'm passionate about something, yeah. well then I'll wear it as a badge. Of that's right. But uh, Leslie Brickus had come to Chuck. Chuck said, "Will you go meet with him?" And uh, I met with him. I love Leslie Brickus, and I love Scrooge, which he had done. It's mm -hmm. one of my favorite uh, Christmas movies. Well, he had written a script, which was, quite frankly, god-awful. Yeah. And it was what every person who doesn't understand animation thought an, an animation script should be. I advised Chuck against it, and I said, but you know, Chuck, if they're starting to come at you thinking they can raise money with your name, well, we can do that. Let's start it. So we did. Uh -huh. And um, the, the only thing that we, we, we did some comic ball cards for Upper Deck that Chuck, with the Looney Tunes, they got a license from Warner Brothers, and we did an animated sequence in a, um, a bad film called Stay Tuned. We took John Ritter and Pam Dauber and turned them into mice. <laughs> what was it like being a partner with Chuck Jones? It had its ups and downs, to be yeah. honest with you. Chuck was older at the time. And uh, uh, to be perfectly honest with you, uh, when I left, um, which I was asked to leave, mm -hmm. it was not under circumstances I would have liked. I have my side of the story, which I'll probably never tell anybody. And I'm <laughs> sure they had their side of the story. But um, You were chucked out. <laughs> I was chucked out. Uh, but I, the, the main division was I wanted to bring in all this young talent I knew. Right. Chuck's idea was I was basically there to find him work. Ah, uh, sure. Okay. okay. Was there anything that he left you with in terms of casual wisdom? Oh, he left me with himself. He was a great raconteur, a great storyteller. Um, he was uh, often kind and very generous. Uh, he had a huge ego, which is not unusual in Hollywood. That's right. You didn't hold it against him. It was his due, let me put it this way. Yep, he'd earned it. Because sure. he was talented. Because he was a man who wanted to be a fine artist. Uh -huh. but, he, but he was a young man in the Depression. Mm -hmm. So the only job he found was to wash cells at um, Schlesinger Company, which was bought by Warner Brothers, and they made the Looney Tune cartoons. Maybe he started somewhere else. But then he worked himself up and became a director. He was erudite. He was very, extremely well-read, had a huge library, and he was sophisticated. Where Fritz Freeling uh, was a vaudevillian, and yeah. and Bob McKimson and Bob Clampett, and they were all very funny guys Clampett, and made yes. great cartoons. But Chuck was a bit more sophisticated, and you can tell with some of his cartoons. The comedy, which was so good, was Chuck funny like that? Yeah, and and when he was funny, it w was as a raconteur mm -hmm. uh, and telling stories, um, and he he uh, physically could um, be a little Chaplin esque. Uh -huh. But he hmm. readily admitted he stole from Chaplin and Buster Keaton and, huh. and all that. But he, I think he had a, a grasp of human psychology that was greater than others. And he always said that Bugs Bunny was who he wanted to be, but Daffy Duck was who he probably was. <laughs> not uh, so bad. Not so bad at all. I'm just curious about the uh, creative chemistry between Mel Blank 
and Chuck Jones, because Mel brought so much to it, obviously. Yeah. How did they go back and forth? How much of it was Mel? How much well, was Chuck? I saw a few recording sessions with Mel when, when Chuck did some TV specials with the Looney Tune characters. And he also, in 78, 79, produced a cartoon called the Bugs Bunny Roadrunner movie, mm -hmm. it was oh, eventually yeah. called, which was basically a compilation of some of his shorts, but with... Uh, bugs in his Beverly Hills home, yeah, yeah. reminiscing elegant, with, right? with his carrot, yeah, <laughs> and in, a, in a dressing gown. Right. Um, and uh, so I was there during the recordings for Mel. There, at that by that point, Mel knew what he was doing. So there wasn't much directing him. I guess Chuck subtly directed him. He wouldn't have been a. It's more like a wouldn't have been Otter, yeah, yeah. Otter Preminger. Mm -hmm. But it was all there on the script. Now the way Chuck worked, as as I saw. Uh, because later he brought in, for some of these things, Mike Maltese, who had been his writer at Looney Tunes. Now, Mike was a New York Dems, Dems and Doe's guy, yeah. um, and he was, a, um, he was a gag man. So he would come up mm -hmm. with physical gags, I think, but then Chuck would do what Chuck called character layouts, which were, of course, gorgeous drawings of, of the characters in poses. That was basically the acting. Because in animation, uh, it, it, it's an art of going from pose to pose and then filling in, in between. And the poses are frozen moments of movement. Uh -huh. um, and so he not only would put out the movement there, and he obviously had uh, acquired a wonderful sense of comedy timing, which in animation you can, you know, to 1 24th of a second you can control. <laughs> That's right. But he wrote all the dialogue. I don't think, I'm not sure Mike ever wrote any dialogue. Because in his character layout, he would write, Chuck would write the dialogue. Oh. So a lot of this cleverness in the verbal, I think, was pure Chuck. Now, I wasn't there in the Looney Tunes days, but I saw a little bit of it when, uh, when I was uh, doing publicity for him and, and uh, some of it later. But mainly during the days in the late 70s when I was in his office, falling in love with his assistant, Mary. Uh -huh. You seem to have left quite a, a trail of, of, of secretaries behind you, right? Uh, well, yeah, they might say. I've had several of them call me up and say, that was the happiest days of my life. It's oh. You were so uh, animated. <laughs> you were in this animation world. Yeah. Eventually, Space Jam was... Well, we get a call from the agent. It says, Ivan Reitman is going to do this film called Space Jam, and he can't find... Animators. Animators. He said, I've got, no one wants to do it. They said it's impossible because it had an impossible deadline. Why did it have an impossible deadline? A big, tall, sweaty guy named Michael Jordan had to get back to playing basketball. Oh, of course. So they had a window to film him. So in three days, I set up this ad hoc animation studio for Ivan over the phone. There was two studios in, in London, one in Ohio called Character Builders. But it was an innovative film and the use of green screen. The supply chain, it's diff, you know, so labor-intensive animation and that yeah. at least full animation is, yeah. not partial animation. And this was going to be full animation. And the difference between full and partial for people who may not know is uh, for like Looney Tunes was full animation mm -hmm. in the sense that the entire body's animated. The cheaper ones, just the mouths move. Just the faces. Well, the really next. cheap ones are that. There's some body movement, but animation is either done on what are called twos or ones, uh, full animation, and that is a, a, a different pose, a different move every two frames. There's 24 pr frames ah. per second in film. 
Um, certain people like Richard Williams, who did the Roger Rabbit animation, he always animated on ones, which I found a little bit too mm. uh, rubbery. It was very rubbery. We brought all these people out and and got them to work, and, and they started filming Michael Jordan, uh, and we're furiously trying to feed them scenes because you you know you got to shoot the live action yeah. unless any scene with the characters that have no live action we we could go off on our own. Um, the film got made got got made on time. Uh, more studios had to be added. So animation continues to be very popular. Adult Swim, yeah. for example. It's but that's, of course, not the kind of anime. I mean, I like the stories, possibly, but it's not full character animation. This is what I wanted to ask you about. The Simpsons, who started mm -hmm. in 1990, I guess it was, they've done all their animation work in South Korea. Uh, well, they were cheaper. That's and grown up in Asian animation, they were used to a more stylized form. Yeah. And everything from Hanna-Barbera, the early days on, if you don't want to call it limited animation, you can call it stylized animation. You do a weekly half hour, that's that's huge. Yeah, you gotta yeah. crank them out. How many artists work on something like that? Hundreds. You made an interesting point about what's really animation. And CGI, which to me is a lazy man's approach to filmmaking in some respects, where it's trying to replicate reality as opposed to an original medium where they're doing something fantastical that you can't shoot in reality. Well, I'll argue with you a little bit there, because when, when I was young and, and promoting animation, I would argue with people, because every animator would say, don't do an animation what you can do just as well in live action. Well, that cuts, the kind, of, cuts the kind of stories you yeah. can do. So I said, no, it should be don't do an animation the same way you would do it in live action. That's, that's right. So CGI, there's some very good performances in CGI. Are we talking Pixar and things like Pixar, that? Pixar, stuff like that. Yeah. There are also performances, there's just in 2D hand-drawn animation, and, and even in CGI, it all starts with hand drawings. Mm -hmm. uh, there is a sense of you're creating the illusion of life, and the closer you get to reality, the less you lose of the magic of the illusion of life. So you believe in Bugs Bunny and, and Daffy Duck and, and uh, the Seven Dwarfs and... Uh, Dumbo. <laughs> Dumbo. You, you believe in them because they've been performed, because they, they get your empathy. You understand mm -hmm. them. There's a psychology there. Um, sometimes in CGI, it's um, the performance is still there, and there are animators that are performing them, but you don't always get the exaggeration you can get away with in 2D hand-drawn animation, and it was all about exaggeration. Rugrats ran for 14 years, Yeah, and it was all two-dimensional, yeah. really, wonderfully, wonderfully animated. Well, they recast it, uh, because most of us are dead, <laughs> and, and they uh, did a CGI version of it, Yeah, and it doesn't work. No, that looks like uh, the rubber dolls. Yeah. That's a CGI I really yeah. don't like, when they look like rubber dolls. Well, it loses the edge. It loses the edge because in animation, it was all about exaggeration. Yeah. Yes. You would exaggerate. The, the audience would get the joke and get the feeling. Yeah. They don't necessarily see it as exaggerated. So stretch and squash, no. which was the big thing in, in animation. Anything could happen. Art isn't life. Art is, is an extension or a, a, a version of life that is more real than real because it's not real. Yes. Does that make sense? What I fell in love with and what I learned at the knee of Chuck Jones and Richard Williams, and, uh, and I knew Frank Thomas and Ollie Johnston from Disney, was the, the beauty of, of this performance art, of the acting. And any other thing in animation, I'm just a fan of if I like it. 
but it was that. And and of course, it's all become CGI. And I like, and I like some CGI films, but mm-hmm. hand drawn animation. But anyway, after Space Jam, uh, I wrote um, Hollywood is an all volunteer army, and then I just continued from there. All of this genius rubbed off on you, no doubt. Yeah, that's why I like, and the, and my art. I finally came to the conclusion after Space Jam. Well, I came to the conclusion before that is prose. Is prose. I love putting words on a blank piece of paper, mm-hmm. and I love sculpting words, mm-hmm. and I love. Uh, I think of it like sculpture. I think of it as using clay or chipping away on on marble stone or using thick oil paints mm-hmm. for a painting, nice. or the movement of a dancer. That that's what prose writing, good prose writing, should be. Now the problem is in getting respect for it, because everybody can write. But not everybody can paint or dance. I mean, really good dancing. Or play a musical instrument. Or, or fly a plane. Or fly a plane. So they respect <laughs> all that if they can't do it. But everybody can write, so they think they, they don't see the art in Is, is in that why fiction. typically in Hollywood writers get the worst treatment? Oh, sure. They always have. Well, one, all the powers that be in Hollywood resent the writers because they need them. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, and it's like, I don't, where's my glory even if you sold an original script, once you've sold it, it becomes work for hire, and you're not in control. And that's right. another reason why I like to write novels, because I do everything. I'm the cinematographer. I'm the director. Mm-hmm. I mm-hmm. perform all the characters. I want to ask you now about the creature feature. Yeah. Because Halloween is a coming. Halloween is a coming. It's an absolutely wonderful book, but it is an even, I think, more wonderful audio Even book. as the author, I, I would agree Oh, with my you. goodness. And Stephen uh, allowed me the opportunity to hear it and to write about it, which I, I to praise it, which I did Beautifully. gladly. And it definitely signifies what you're saying mm-hmm. about the aspect of control that, that you exhibit because it is a full-blown, involving movie for the mind. It really is. How did you hire Seamus? Seamus Dever, who had played Lieutenant Ryan on Castle. He's an incredible actor, and he impressed me so much. I wanted to do an audio book, so I really wanted Seamus, but I was, quite frankly, too shy. I I said, I don't want to bug him. So finally, I called Seamus up, and I proposed it to him, and he went for it like like a shot because his best friend is Ramon de Campo who's big in audiobooks. The main lead of Creature Features is a female. Yes. That part went to his wife. Right. Vivacia is the character. Vivacia, it's, it's a right. small TV station in Chicago in 1960s, early <laughs> 1960s. But Kathy Anderson who plays her was trained at Actors Studio in New York. And it just is going to quit because I'm an actress. Yes, right. I'm going back. To, I want to go to New York. I want to be on Broadway. I want to do Hedda Gobbler. And so she quits. And her, her agent uh, was very upset over this, uh, he, which, which he would be because she's his only client. Sure. Anyway, she quits. But on the way home, and she lives in Illinois, she stops off to see mom and dad at, at uh, Placidville. And things are just strange. Things have changed. She thinks at first everybody's acting weird as sort of a tribute because they're all fans of of Vivation. And she wants to get as far away from Vivation as possible. (laughs) But it turns out these aren't the real people. They've been taken over by monsters from from the fifth dimension Dimension. or maybe the sixth. I haven't worked that out yet. Let's take a listen now to a, a clip from Creature Feature, a horrid comedy. 
I want power, Kathy. And I believe I can start on the road to it here among these people. Then we will grow, spread out, creep, and slither our way into the body politic, sucking up all the power our bellies will hold. Kathy, we can shape things to our comfort. We can make this world as we want it. Holy Hannah, Kathy thought. This is Lover's Lane, not Pennsylvania Avenue. But damn. (laughs) (laughs) I love radio drama. I love radio comedy. I highly recommend that people go online and get the audiobook, especially our audience, because I don't know how many of, of the 12 people who are listening to us are suffering from macular degeneration like I am. But reading has become much more challenging and listening to these wonderful audiobooks that are being cranked out right right now. Everything I write, I write for the human voice. Even though I'm writing prose Mm. for print, in my mind, it's always for the human voice. It's always a performance. And literature is an oral tradition. Yes, it is. an oral tradition. That's right. Good old Homer. Yeah, good old Homer. And we're not talking about the cartoon. Here's the thing. Whether they can read print or not, they can get a deal on the audiobook. Ah. I'm bringing down the e-book to a... Paltry 99 cents. Whoa. And the thing is with Amazon, if you buy the ebook, then you can get the audiobook for about half off. Where would you find it? I'm exclusive to Amazon. You have a, a lot of sci fi interest, and you had something about the moon written in the tradition of H.G. Wells, Jules Verne. Journey to Where. And you also have a story about uh, coming to Earth and observing Earth from an ET perspective. Traveling in space. Is this an interest of yours? Well, yeah, I grew up uh, watching sci-fi movies and reading science fiction and Tom Corbett and all that. Space Cadet. Um, at space, Tom Corbett, Space Cadet. And I still f- can find them on YouTube, which wow. are great. Um, and John Fiedler was a, a Tales regular. of Tomorrow. Tales of Tomorrow. I've seen a couple of those. And Rocky Jones and, uh, of course, Space Patrol. But then, obviously, Star Trek hits in 1966. Right. Um and uh, I still I actually prefer science fiction in film. I don't read as much as I, I started to as a kid. I read a lot of 19th century literature, and I read a lot of literary fiction. And I have uh, what I consider to be literary fiction. I have a series of novels I call my uh, Love, Sex, and Pursuit of Happiness series. Mm-hmm. And the first one was called By the Sea, and that's, by, that's about happiness, although love and sex figure into it. The one that came out earlier this year is called Bully for Love, which emphasizes love, but sex and pursuit of happiness involved in it. And next year I'll come out with The Reluctant Heterosexual, (laughs) which is about sex, but love and and pursuit of happiness. So, Stephen, what do you have coming up? What's your next plan? Well, I just finished a novel, which I will try to bring out later next year, which is called The Definition of Luck. It has to do with, um, well, like all works, I suppose, the human condition and right now and whether we can uh, survive this planet. But it's really about friendship. Oh, good. Well, Stephen, thank you so much. Thank you. I I certainly hope that when uh, some of your other novels come out, you can come back and talk with us again. Thank you for taking us on a wonderful adventure. Okay. Take care. Well, Ted, we've, we've met a true Renaissance man today talking with Stephen. It was absolutely wonderful fun, and it was kind of like a getting into the Wayback Machine. A look at old Hollywood. Yeah. 
Don't forget to visit our website, sexyboomershow.com, if you'd like to hear all the other episodes with all the interesting people we've had. And if you are listening to this on your phone, hit the little subscribe button. That doesn't mean it costs you anything. It just signs you up for an alert on your podcast app when we drop a new episode. I can't wait to listen. All right, Phil. Until next time, see ya. You've been listening to Phil and Ted's Sexy Boomer Show, featuring Phil Proctor and Ted Bonnet and their special guest, Stephen Leva. Music by Eddie Betos and the Nervous Brothers. I'm a earnest guy. Tell your friends about the Sexy Boomer Show. Produced by RadioPictures.com, the makers of fine podcasts for seasoned hipsters, man. 